Hey folks, and welcome back to Prognosis Ohio. I'm Dan Skinner. Uh, super psyched as always about today's episode. You know me, I think these conversations are important, all of them, or I wouldn't be doing this with my free time. But today I get to talk with some super smart health advocates and scholars from OSU about the state of eye care here in Ohio. Learning about aspects of health and healthcare that I know very little about is one of the perks of this podcast. And as someone with struggling eyes myself, I enjoyed learning about some of the policy challenges that vision care poses. First, though, it's time for Things You Need to Know, brought to you in collaboration with the Center for Community Solutions. Let's jump right in. Traumatic experiences in childhood and teenage years may put children at risk for violence, chronic health issues, mental illness, and substance abuse in adulthood. They can even impact relationships and earning ability. Among these adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, are violence, abuse or neglect, toxic stress, substance abuse, or instability due to parental separation. Unfortunately, ACEs are all too common, with women and children of color at particular risk. A new set of data from our friends over at the Health Policy Institute of Ohio helps us to understand some promising strategies for preventing adverse child experiences. The report, which we're linking to in the show notes, offers three key recommendations for policymakers. HPIO notes that there are many opportunities to support partners across the state who are implementing cost-effective, evidence-based strategies to prevent ACEs. The experts also tell us that adverse childhood experience prevention efforts often miss the mark in meeting the actual needs of children and families. This means that to maximize impact, strategies need to be scaled up and tailored toward those most at risk for experiencing adversity. Evidence-based strategies for addressing ACEs can reduce healthcare spending and other costs, but to do this, Ohio is going to have to increase funding and other support for evidence-based strategies. As the report notes, this will not only improve the lives of Ohio's children, but will lead to reduced long-term cost savings. To do this, Ohio is going to have to increase funding and other support for evidence-based strategies. The second thing you need to know is that the groundwork for ACEs are sometimes laid even before childhood begins. This points us back, of course, to Ohio's poor maternal health care outcomes, something we've talked about a lot on our show, as well as Ohio's high uninsured rate for women, coming in at 16th in the nation. Listeners who heard our episode a few weeks back spotlighting Community Solutions' data points on health and human services in Ohio might remember that better agency responsiveness and budget commitment could have an impact on the prevention of ACEs. In 2020, for example, 26% of calls to the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services went unanswered. Nearly 30% of children are food insecure, and feeding kids in public schools would only cost $20 million for our whole state. Ohio, we remind you, ranks 36th in the nation for child poverty. We also see the impact of ACEs and the poor behavioral health outcomes we have in our state. Demand for behavioral health services increased by 353% between 2013 and 2019, which is just one reason why Ohio is fourth in the nation for overdose deaths and suicide is the leading cause of death for young Ohioans aged 10 to 34. Third, some of those at the greatest risk for ACEs have complex needs that require help from the state. After years of development, a new program, Ohio Rise, launched this summer to offer comprehensive, coordinated care and new and enhanced services to children and youth with the most complex needs, needs that have, to date, not been served very well by any one system of care in Ohio. Ohio Rise welcomes children and youth ages 0 to 20 enrolled in Ohio Medicaid with significant behavioral health needs, which could see an enrollment of 50 to 60,000 children and youth. Okay, let's turn to today's interview now. 
As part of a new collaboration with the Ohio Journal of Public Health, I visited the Ohio State College of Optometry to talk to two authors of a new paper published in the OJPH, which examines the state of vision care services and access under Medicaid in Ohio. Dr. Dean Van Nasdale, who's the lead author, is a professor of optometry at OSU's College of Optometry. And Dr. Andy Wapner heads up the Center for Public Health Practice and is a clinical professor at the College of Public Health. Let me add some apologies in advance for some of the background noise created by the air system at OSU, a formidable adversary of clear audio. And you'll also hear a little bit of construction noise from time to time. Those of you who've been to this part of campus lately know that in addition to the crazy parking situation, there's a lot of building going on there. So it makes sense. But it was a really nice conversation and I think you're gonna learn a lot from it. Dean and Andy, thanks so much for taking some time to be on the show. Glad to be here, Dan. Thanks for having us. So I'd like to use your article in the Ohio Journal of Public Health as a basis to talk about vision care kind of generally today. And let's be sure to note that this article is 10 authors, right? You're two of them. Um, And we're going to be linking to the article so listeners can read it. Let's turn to Dean first for the optometric approach here a little bit, um, just to kind of set the stage. We've talked on this show in, in past episodes about dental care. We've talked about behavioral health. We've talked about other areas that have historically been cut out of medical services and have access problems here in Ohio. What's unique about eye care here? I think there's a couple of different things that's unique about eye care. I think eye care as a public health problem is is kind of underappreciated. I think that it typically doesn't result in a lot of painful symptoms. Uh, So people who have relatively early eye disease or have things like uh, uncorrected refractive error where they need glasses or contacts, um, they don't have a lot of pain, so they don't always uh, necessarily think to seek care. And some of the changes happen relatively early when people are asymptomatic. So a lot of times you've got people who are at risk for vision loss but don't understand it. So there's also an aspect of health literacy that I think is part of it also. So... When you think about eyes, then, I mean, so what you're saying is that kind of there, there may be things going on. This is a real space where we need preventive care. We need to get ahead of things because you might not know something's going on until you're kind of too far down the road. Yeah, I think that's right, especially when you talk about things like age-related eye disease, things like uh, macular degeneration, glaucoma, cataracts. A lot of those things start relatively uh, – people are, don't really have a lot of issues until you're a little bit further along in the disease process, and by then you've – sometimes got permanent vision loss that you can't really do much about. So prevention is really, I think, the key for at least the the vision care space and and some of the things that we're starting to pay a little bit more attention to now using the data to try to make that case. So Andy, I'm going to turn to you now. Let's talk about the situation in Ohio a little bit. You know, uh, your article declares that the state of Ohio has been uniquely proactive when collecting vision-oriented data through population health surveys. And you know, as uh, somebody who's been in Ohio for 12 years, I don't often hear that Ohio has been proactive in too many spaces in healthcare. So that caught my eye. You know, I, I wonder if you can tell us why you think this is, you know, why, why do you think that this is getting more attention? And, and, and also, what have you learned a little bit in the, the process of, of doing this work that ended up in this article? You know, Ohio has had a relatively robust surveillance system for adults for a while. And, and the vision uh, health questions have been a part of that. And, you know, I think when you look at changes over time to how Ohio tracks different diseases and risks and, and um, problems across the state, a lot of the data that we get tends to come at the request of advocates Um, in this space. And so I think that's part of what's unique in Ohio is the advocacy space is so strong in vision health. 
and and the need to collect vision data. And so having Ohio State right down the street, partnering with the Department of Aging, partnering with the Ohio affiliate of the Prevent Blindness, um, you know, these are a, a coalition of people who really are focused on understanding, you know, the need to understand vision health and vision need, healthcare need, and and really working with the Department of Health who, you know, controls the surveillance and data collection to, to make sure that we continue to collect data. I wanted to, I just wanted to add a couple of things that I, when you're doing this kind of work, especially if you're trying to advocate for certain issues related to health, uh, you need that coalition because when you're trying to get questions added for specific health concerns that you have in state surveys, uh, then you have to be part of a competitive process. So there's lots of people that are trying to get questions added into these surveys. And if you have the support of a pretty broad coalition, that helps make the case when you're in sort of a competitive process to get these questions added. And so this turns out to be a, a pretty long process. Uh, process. You have to get the questions added. The questions have to be incorporated into the survey. Then you have to get the data. So it's multiple years, a couple of years in the planning, uh, a year or two in the data collection, and then taking a look at the data and analyzing it. And fortunately, uh, in Ohio, they've been really good at collecting vision data. Uh, several years ago, there were several questions that were uh, supported by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to be added into one of the surveys, the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System. And Ohio uh, added those questions each of the years that it was available from CDC. Uh, so I think that that is a lot of really important infrastructure that's that was in place that allowed us to actually do this kind of work. So people have been doing this for, for a long time, but it takes years of planning and, and pretty strong coalitions to get this to work. It does remind you, though, that advocacy is absolutely essential in healthcare and, and groups that, you know, diseases that don't have strong advocates, um, you know, preventive services that don't ha- aren't well organized, but they really lose out because ultimately that's what pushes states to do things like this kind of work. I noticed also, I mean, you know, I was looking at, for example, um, this eye health index. I don't know if it's legit or not, but I was reading about it online and they talk about Cleveland and Akron as being two of the, the 10 cities that, that are doing worst in this area. I mean, there's some pockets in Ohio too. There's also going to be regional disparity here. There is. There's a lot of disparity. One of the good things about the, the data that are out there is that there's a lot of data that we haven't really looked at yet, but it's really insightful. So if you look at things like the census has questions about vision that they incorporate into the American Community Survey. And from those data, you can start to look at county level estimates. And when you start to look at county level distribution of vision impairment, you can see in Ohio that there's huge disparities or differences in health outcomes when you look at at vision itself. And we're starting to use those data more and more to try to develop sort of a a list of priorities or where's vision health need the greatest. And then you can look at that in combination with other data, data that come out of things like the Ohio Medicaid Assessment Survey, asking, you know, in the past 12 months, has there been a time when you've needed vision care services but haven't been able to get them for whatever reason? And so then you can start to put some of these different data sources together to try to piece together a narrative that says, well, this is an area that has high vision problems but low access, according to a couple of different different uh, outcome metrics from some of these health surveillance sources that we use. And so that we're trying to put together sort of, we're sort of trying to triage the vision health problem. And we're finding that in the state of Ohio, there's a lot of disparities and we're starting to quantify that. And that I think helps make a case for policy changes and, and interventions that might not be in place already. 
So from the data you look at in, in this study, um, the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System, the BRFSS, and we're going to be linking to this in the, the show notes, so listeners don't need to write that down. Um, just go to the website. You found that the, those at greatest risk uh, for vision loss remain the least likely to access or utilize these services. Um, you know, and you, you talk about this idea of there's no reason to go being one of the things that comes up a lot. People, and, and this kind of speaks to what we said before, people who may not have symptoms or things that are occurring to them, but you know, are, are not engaging in preventive services. Um, utilization patterns, I mean, they weren't shocking to me in a way as a health policy person, but really important to document too, to the piece about you, that you mentioned about triaging and trying to figure out what to do next. Um, older folks are more likely to have eye exams, which is good because, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that's the population where um, this is most acute. Women more likely than men to, um, well, actually, am I getting that right? So women, what's the gender dynamic here? Uh, women more likely than men to uh, to utilize vision care services. Mm-hmm. Uh, also women more likely than men, if you look at a lot of the epidemiology data, more likely to have vision health problems too. Right. So, and women are more likely than men in almost every area of healthcare to engage in these kinds of services. And also, householding in- income is a significant predictor. So, let's just kind of talk about a little bit of what this utilization pattern looks like. I mean, is it special in the in the area of vision care or kind of tracking? I don't think it's necessarily sp- special or unique in the vision care sector. I think that part of the problem is is not a lot of people have actually sort of quantified it for vision care. And I think that people make assumptions on what vision care access and utilization looks like uh, without actually looking into the data to see whether or not it's, it's similar or different. And I think having numbers to actually quantify that helps quite a bit. So, Andy, what you do with population health, though, when you hear these demographics or these kind of utilization patterns, um, what does this say to you about, about, about like the overall picture of how vision care fits into health screenings and such? Yeah, I, th- I think you see a lot of the same trends and you see trends where, you know, if you look at education level, people with a lower education attainment, um, for example, didn't graduate high school, go to the doctor less, go to the eye, go to their eye care um, person less. And, and I think that's consistent across as as our trends in, in gender and, and income. And I think, you know, it's important to consider that while we take out different parts of the healthcare system and make their own systems and dental and vision, healthcare are, are very much outside of what we, we being most people would tend to think of as healthcare, um, maybe in part because it's completely different insurance for people who have insurance for this. If you're not on public insurance, such as Medicaid, and it's a sort of a separate part of your insurance, even on Medicaid, it's a separate part of your insurance. They tend to be completely different settings to go to care, get care in. They could be in in strip malls and in big stores like Walmart and Costco. So there's a lot of differences, I think, that are inherent with getting vision care. But when you look at the trends, you see the same determinants of um, people and communities that have lower utilization, have lower access, have lower resources and fewer opportunities to achieve health. And so one of the places you see that is in utilization. It's not the only cause, obviously, for vision health disparities across populations. And I think one of the things this paper points out is even when insurance is added and you have the change from Medicaid expansion, you don't see a tremendous increase in utilization. Um, And, you know, I I think the paper points out 
in you know a lot of uh, that population instead of saying i don't have insurance so i'm not going to go get care it's i didn't have to go get care there's no reason to go and i think that's another example that we see time and time again that just giving access to healthcare doesn't solve population level health problems right and this is something you know, since 2010 when the affordable care act was passed and then the medicaid expansion coming along and thankfully here in ohio we expanded medicaid uh, but still, that was the beginning, right? That was that was the opening of a door, but we still have to get people to walk through the door. And there's all sorts of cultural barriers and in, in other pieces to the puzzle. You know, in the paper that insurance coverage is only beneficial if individuals actively seek and are able to obtain care. So there's a kind of like volitional part to that. And then there's also a barrier. Even if people want to seek care, there may be other barriers there. What are some of these barriers that we're talking about here, um, even in light of having formal healthcare access? I think there's there's a number of barriers, and I think that this paper starts to get at that a little bit. But I think we have to do a lot more work to identify what those barriers are and what the magnitude of those barriers is. And I think that it's sort of I hate to use the analogy, but it's sort of like an onion. I mean, like we're we're peeling away individual layers, and and we learn something, and then we realize that we have to dig a little bit deeper and find out what some of the underlying causes are. But I think some of it is provider distribution in the state of Ohio. There's locations where there aren't a whole lot of providers for people to be able to utilize care. Uh, another issue is Medicaid reimbursement might not be high enough so that it's sustainable for providers to be uh, Medicare providers and, and accept Medicaid patients into their patient population. So I think that that's another potential barrier. I think there's other issues like transportation that also plays a role, even in areas where you have public transportation, uh, being able to get to locations where providers are, I think can still be difficult. So I think that there's a number of, of different barriers that now that we have these data, we have to explore a little bit more. So, Dean, while I have you on the mic, though, so you're, you're the optometry expert here. I, uh, I, I want I want to ask about the workforce here. You, you train um, future optometrists here at OSU. Where are we with that? You know, compared to other states, but also in terms of the the actual um, demand we have here. I think it's tough to compare to different states because not a lot of states collect the type of data that we collect in Ohio. So we're sort of uniquely positioned to come up with some of these uh, healthcare needs assessments with respect to vision. Um, but I think within the state of Ohio, we do a pretty good job of training primary care vision uh, providers in the optometric program. I think the challenging part is trying to incentivize some of those providers to go into medically underserved populations. And so this goes to a really big policy issue that I think is important, is that unlike other healthcare disciplines, uh, optometrists coming out of optometry school don't have opportunities to participate in the National Health Service Corps where they could get student loan repayment mm -hmm. for providing services in medically underserved populations. So it's trying to match sort of the provider distribution to the need, I think, is the bigger problem. Because a lot of people who come out of optometry school uh, are are typically more interested in working in some of the more sort of urban areas, you know, like Columbus. And, and so you don't see as many people going to the more rural areas where if you look at the epidemiology data, it shows that that's where some of the biggest need is. It's not that there isn't need in, in some of the urban areas, too. It's just that making sure that that distribution is a little bit more closely aligned, I think, is really important. Andy, I'm wondering, you know, knowing your background and, and the work you do and as a physician as well, I mean, do you think that primary care or pediatrics like these, these, there's, there's this trend around the country I'm seeing where 
there's a sense that we're not going to fill our workforce needs. We're, we don't have enough trained professionals in the specific areas. So we need generalists. We need family docs. We need pediatricians. We need these people to understand more about something like optometry to be able to do more of this work um, on the front end. I mean, do you think that that's a piece of the puzzle as well? Yeah, I do. And I, I don't think it's limited to just the primary care workforce. I think it's the public health workforce. It's both of these community groups, healthcare and public health, working together to figure out how do I identify populations we can assume have high risk from all of the data that we do have around the types of populations that have a disparate risk. And healthcare, understanding that just like mental health care, it's not a separate issue. And people with vision health concerns have typically are at least more higher um, or more likely to have other underlying health problems, um, mental health problems, physical health problems. They might also be less likely to be able to join the workforce if their vision health is deteriorating. So, you know, it's not just, you know, our primary care providers screening for vision problems, which in pediatrics, certainly it's done beginning very early Mm -hmm. uh, in general well visits, um, but continuing to screen throughout primary care visits, continuing to identify opportunities in communities to make sure that you're referring patients. But it's also really the public health workforce. And I mean that very generally. Yeah. Right. So it's not just the local public health agency, but it's all of the social services and folks that are working in a community to ensure health services are available, provided and equitable. All of that has to kind of work together. Yeah. You know, the, the, there's the adage in, in medical school of, you know, eyes are the window to the brain. Right. And in most people, that's where any changes in the brain, including vision health, can be seen. You know, you asked earlier what what I really sort of learned from this paper, and and I I think more than anything, it's that it brings you back to prevention, right? It just every time you investigate something like vision health or dental health, it it all comes back to prevention. It comes back to the idea that you know really what what public health is is prevention. What primary care is is prevention and and i think that's the role that needs to be really strengthened um just from reading a paper that says you know if if almost everybody says they don't need to go to the eye doctor and we know that there's undiagnosed vision concerns we know that vision um, health deteriorates over time like that's a just an, an an enormous opportunity to to reach out to different populations that we're just now starting to learn who and where they might be to get them engaged into not just their own vision health, but community vision health as well. You point to a a number of different reasons why we should take this seriously. And I'm wondering as you're talking, and it seems like vision care, just like dental care, we've, we've talked dental kind of had this sort of repositioning uh, to understand why people couldn't uh, get gainful employment because their, their dental situation was so bad. And I'm guessing that vision, that there's also a number we could put on for those who might not be of the public health frame, but might be of the kind of economic frame and and the the expenditures to the state. I mean, do you think that ultimately vision, there's a part of this that could be in that category? I think that there's a really important part. And I think that for policy considerations, you have to include an economic argument too, right? And the CDC's Vision Health Initiative, it's it's a relatively small group at CDC, but they're doing extraordinary work. They just uh, have recently put together and released an economics toolkit where you can actually go in and look at the cost uh, in different states for different 
uh, eye diseases and, and vision care services. And I think putting stuff like that, that's sort of an interactive dashboard that anybody can access uh, and can sort of present that material to broad stakeholder groups turns out to be really important. So I think that there is a really good economic argument. And I think more and more people are starting to do work in that. There's not a lot of people in vision health who have a lot of uh, economic expertise. So you don't get as probably much economic analyses out of vision as you might out of oral health. Uh, but we're starting to build capacity a little bit. And I think CDC is really starting to lead the way with that. You know, I think to keep in mind that in, in many cases, vision concerns are symptoms of underlying chronic diseases. And, you know, there's a lot of Ohio that's struggling with high blood pressure, with diabetes, with prediabetes, and all of these you know, chronic diseases impact vision health, right? And in some cases, the vision, your vision is how some of these diseases start to manifest, right? And if we are impacting vision at the top of the pyramid in terms of what's going on inside your body with a chronic disease, and you think then through, well, what is the, you know, we want to go back to economics, what is the earning potential for this person? Right. What is and, and, you know, when you not just we, we can break it down economically, and I think it's important to do that. But we also have to remind people that, you know, vision health is an enormous has an enormous impact on quality of life. Right. So the population health metrics that we pay attention to in terms of how well are we doing in caring for our populations and providing opportunities for health, length of life, quality of life, quality of life is enormously impacted by vision health. So on a population level, and your, is your community thriving? Without high quality vision health prevention for for vision related disease, it's really hard to ensure your community is going to thrive, let alone your own economic poten- potential. So I think that's important to remember, especially when we consider that the same factors that go into reducing a community's opportunity for health impact vision health too. So so racism, and you know, you asked a little bit about why aren't people seeking access? Well, we know for healthcare. If we maybe you know take out vision health like we do normally and take it out and not consider it healthcare, and we just go back to bread and butter healthcare. That there's enormous impacts of of racism and other uh, determinants in a community that impact not just someone getting care but getting high quality care and, and even engaging in the system. Oh, that's really great. So, in our last minute or so here, you know, um, I, I've I talked to a lot of legislators, and uh, one of the things I've learned is that sometimes legislators want the summary. They want the synthesis. So we. This is a part of the the episode where we can tell them, you know, skip up to minute, whatever, uh, and you get. It. If you wanted policymakers to take one or two pearls from this, I'm going to go to each one of you. What would they be? What what what's, what's the big takeaway that you would like people to um, get from this article? Maybe we'll start with Andy and end with Dean. So, I think the expansion of Medicaid was an enormous benefit to the future of healthcare for the the Ohioans who need it the most. But it's just the first step. There has to be a lot of other work from both healthcare and public health entities across the state, state level, local level, to have people engage in that system, to make it an equitable system. You couldn't have done anything without expanding Medicaid. Mm-hmm. If we had universal health care, that would be a great step too, because you're you're going even deeper into the, the population's 
to, to get them engaged in the healthcare system. Let's not get out of control, though. Right, today. right. Yeah. Um, so to bring back to reality, having expanded Medicaid is great and is a, was a needed step to get people into the healthcare system. But if we continue to focus on getting people engaged at the population level, at community levels, through primary care, through public health, through social services, and reminding people that vision health is a part of how we take care of ourselves and how we take care of our community, I think that then takes advantage of the benefit of having Medicaid. Great. And Dean? If, if, if there's uh, just a couple of points that I would want to get across, it would be that vision health is really a complex health issue and something that isn't on the radar oftentimes when people are talking about health care more broadly. Um, but there's a lot of data out there that we can use to help quantify sort of the magnitude of that problem and who it's impacting. And I think that we need to challenge a lot of assumptions using those data, seeing whether or not... Uh, insurance coverage actually translates to utilization of care. And when we f challenge those assumptions and find out that the things that we had always assumed might not be uh, correct, then we have to go a little bit deeper and figure out what the underlying causes are so that we can address the problem. Because in a lot of instances, vision impairment is an addressable issue. It's just we have to figure out the best interventions to put in place to try to, to deal with it. Great. Well, so Dean, Andy, uh, but also to your co-authors, uh, I want to thank you all for writing this piece and, um, you know, and, and the collaboration that led to it. I mean, this is a, a pretty big operation and it, I, I love when public health and optometry and different people come together for work like this. So I want to thank you for writing the paper and also for taking some time to talk about it with me. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I think it was a really great effort. And I think that the number of co-authors on this is an indication of how much expertise is required to do some of these analyses. So you've got Department of Aging, you've got Prevent Blindness, you've got the College of Public Health, College of Optometry, all working together towards a common goal, which I think is really important. Listeners, go read the paper. Dean, Andy, thanks very much. Thank, Thank you. you. This episode was produced by me, Dan Skinner. I received editorial and production support from Angela Lynn. Special thanks to Patty Carlisle at Community Solutions for help with the Things You Need to Know segment. Don't forget to check out our show notes, which has the links to all the studies and reports and all the other stuff we mentioned in the episode. And also, while you're there at prognosisohio.com, be sure to check out an archive of past episodes, including episodes that are nice counterparts to today's conversation. Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCBE Podcast Experience and the Health Podcast Network. As always, please be in touch with us if you have any ideas for guests, topics, or ways we can improve the show. In the meantime, we wish you well, and thanks for listening.